Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT why are high street banks so keen to talk about investment bonds? What has the Investor's Chronicle learned from 150 years of writing about shares? And when is it safe for property buyers to think about new build homes again? Answers to all of these questions to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Alice Ross. Hello. And Tanya Poli. Hello. And our special studio guest, Claire Barrett of Investor's Chronicle. Hello. So let's start with the money news. Last week, Santander, the banking group that took over the customers of Abbey, Alliance and Leicester and Bradford and Bingley, announced that it had entered an exclusive agreement to sell Prudential's investment bonds in all of its branches for five years. And it's not the only bank to offer these insurance company bonds to high street customers. Co-op and the Royal Bank of Scotland sell them too. But in recent days, financial advisers have expressed concern over the suitability of these bonds for basic rate, higher rate and non-taxpayers. One went so far as to describe the Santander move as a recipe for mis-selling and yet another clear example of commissions and commercial pressures standing in the way of common sense. Alice, this is pretty strong stuff. Um, Are these fears justified, do you think? Well, it's probably not fair to say that um, Santander is going to be mis-selling things before it's even sold anything. <laughs> it's not starting to sell these bonds in its branches until next year. Um, and when it does, you know, I'm sure that they will tell us that they're taking all appropriate steps to make sure they're giving the right advice. That said, um, investment bonds are, uh, financial advisors increasingly saying that investment bonds are just not that suitable for the majority of investors, as you say, be it basic rate taxpayers, higher rate taxpayers or non-taxpayers, that's basically everyone. Um, they're just not very suitable investments anymore. They're a little bit outdated. So let's just uh, we'll sort of recap on on what they are exactly. Um, if you go into Santander or Co-op or RBS, any of these banks, and someone says, would you like an investment bond? What are you being sold? You're being sold a product that is offered actually through a life insurance company. So it's actually an insurance contract. Not to be confused with your normal fixed rate bond that you get in a bank, which just offers you, you know, 3% cash or whatever. So um, it's an insurance contract. 
but what it does is it wraps up um, other investments within it. So usually you'll be offered access through the investment bond to uh, maybe 10 other funds, maybe 50 funds. It, it depends on the product that you're offered. Um, a lot of these funds will be managed by the life insurance company. Um, some may be managed outside of the life insurance company, but it's basically a way of putting a lot of equity investments in one place. It's the tax issue that seems to be causing all this consternation. Mm. So how are these bonds taxed? Well, they're unusual compared to other forms of equity investment in that uh, investment bonds are taxed as income, not capital gains. So if you own a unit trust or an investment trust uh, shares, then you pay capital gains on that when you sell it. When you sell an investment bond, you pay income tax. So that creates its own problems. Um, with investment bonds, 20% income tax is deducted at source. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, you don't have to pay any more income when you cash it in. If you're a high rate taxpayer, you have to pay a further 20% or 30% if you're at the new 50% rate. Um, and if you're a non-taxpayer, it really wouldn't make any sense at all because you would have paid 20% income on something when you don't even have any income. Yes, and uh, well, and if you're paying income tax on the gains you make, you're not getting to use your capital gains tax allowance of you know ten thousand one hundred pounds a year. Exactly, that's why for most basic rate taxpayers, it might sound good because you don't pay any extra income tax, but you're not using your capital gains tax allowance that way unless you have a significant portfolio of um, other shares that are taxed as capital gains. But it's unlikely. Now these are um, onshore investment bonds, but um, some other advisors have been recommending offshore mm. investment bonds uh, to certain of their clients. Are there concerns about these as well? There are concerns about these as well. That they tend to be more recommended to higher rate taxpayers. So if you're being offered an investment bonds as, as a higher rate taxpayer, chances are it'll be an offshore one. Now, offshore ones offer certain additional tax advantages in that they allow the investments in the investment bond to grow free of tax. So that can be quite a good deal. And if you're a higher rate taxpayer now when you buy the bond and you're going to be a basic rate taxpayer, for example, in retirement or later in life, that can also be a good deal. Um, but offshore bonds are also, um, you know, questionable by, by financial advisors. What some companies are now doing is um, they've basically devised this technical way of shifting the tax from some of your offshore bonds um, to other bits so the bonds can be cashed in in parts and what they're doing is saying well if you want to cash in your bond why don't you cash in three quarters of it this way and then we'll move the growth onto the bit that you haven't cashed in um, and so you avoid paying any tax on it when you cash it in but it kind of sounds too good to be true and advisors some advisors are just not recommending these kind of bonds because they say well this is the kind of thing that the revenue could definitely clamp down on. So you need to be very wary if you're uh, if if you're sold both an onshore bond and an offshore bond. It sounds yes, in, in summary. <laughs> well, thanks for that, for that, Alice. And uh, for more on the pros and cons of these uh, two types of uh, investment bond, look out for Alice's article in FT Money with this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show: Are new build properties a better bet than period homes? First, though, a rather special anniversary. 
This week, Investors Chronicle magazine celebrates 150 years of reporting on events in the UK stock market and offering share tips to private investors. It started life back in 1860 as the weekly Money Market Review, merged with the Investors Chronicle and Journal of Finance in 1914, and was taken over by Brendan Bracken, the man behind the modern Financial Times, in 1928. Then in 1967, Investors Chronicle merged again with the Stock Exchange Gazette, and in 1978 it became part of the FT Group. Some of the legendary journalists who have worked on the title over the years include Harold Wincott, Andreas Whittam-Smith, Lucy Kellaway and Robert Peston, and, of course, our special studio guest, Claire Barrett, who has just edited the 150th anniversary issue. So, Claire, having just emerged from the uh, the dusty archives, uh, uh, having done all your research. What are the lessons of the last 150 years of history? Well, Matthew, I should point out a fellow legendary editor of the Investors Chronicle from a few years back. Um, the, surprisingly, the lessons learned from 150 years are that we haven't bloody learned any of the lessons. Um, the first ever issue um, in 1860, which somebody fortunately had a photocopy of, sadly we don't have the original, it got a bit lost, um, was a very interesting document to read. The three top stories in that issue from 150 years ago were a warning on burdensome government debt, um, well, you know, nothing's changed there, um, a scandalous banking um, anomaly, which had come to light, making people fear for their savings. Things. Well, you know, 150 years later, we're still reading from Northern Rock and Lehman Brothers. And finally, an article about the worrying state of Turkey's debt, most of which was held externally by British investors, whereas um, today we obviously have Greece, um, which is troubling us. So not a lot has changed, but um, there are, are some useful things that we can uh, draw on the lessons of history. Notably, my challenge to our associate editor, Dominic Picarda, um, who's our resident pointy head, you could say. And I said, Dominic, can you find out what £100 invested in the stock market in the 1860s would be worth today? Now, he scratched his head a bit because there wasn't an index um, that you could follow back then. It was all a big mess with um, thousands of, of companies dotted all over the place. Um, but he worked out from academic records what the rough line would have been. Then he joined us up with the FT30 index, which started in the 1930s, and then finally with the FTSE 100, which started in the 1980s. And he came up with the answer. Would you like to know how much your £100 is worth? £100 over 150 years of, well... A series of bull markets and bear markets. Um, I don't know, I've got no idea. Well, the no answer idea. is about 12 grand, um, which I thought was fairly piffling, I have to say. I, I thought, I I thought it was yeah. going to be a lot more. Um, and I said to him, well, why is it so low? Uh, and, he, and he said, well, that's not accounting for inflation. And also, it's purely capital growth of that £100. It doesn't account for, A, the dividends you would have received, or B, the impact if you had reinvested them. Um, again and again into the index and I said okay well what's the real figure then um, and he gave me one of those looks so <laughs> I mean you could speculate and say you know would it be a million pounds would it be two million pounds I mean the, the lesson that history tells us is start early with your investments um, keep going with them keep reinvesting the dividends take advantage of compound interest and eventually um, you'll have a nice little nest egg but it may 
take some time. And looking back over the performance of the um, markets, that red line, which is in the bumper issue, there are periods of 20 or 30 years when the capital um, gains, the capital returns, uh, hardly do anything at all. I mean, for most of the 1970s, it was you know dead as a dodo, completely flat. But then you have a very short window where the performance goes bonkers, as in the 1980s. So set over a long period, the stock market um, you know was far superior to property, bonds, the gold price um, even, but it was often down to a very short period of outperformance rather than a steady drip, drip, drip of growth. So that leaves uh, the private investor then, I suppose, having to decide whether or not to try to time the market and capture these sort of short bursts of sudden growth, or whether to just go very, very long term, you know, longer than these 30-year sort of plateau periods so that you you have time to you know, to make some money. Yeah, and I suppose a sensible approach would be um, to, to try and go for some long-term investments and some shorter-term ones that you think are going are gonna to drive a return. I mean, an- another kind of interesting social point that we could make is in 1860, the average life expectancy was, was 40 years, so retirement provision was nil because most people just died um, whereas nowadays in the course of no in the course of our publishing history um, the the life expectancy of the average brit has has doubled to nearly 80 years so you know we've got even more um, uh, you know need to to save and, and make wise investments so i would say you've got to have a long term attitude start early and keep a, a copy of the investors chronicle at your elbow to come up with some share tips every week that might make you those short term gains yes i thought you might be able to put in a little sales pitch uh, there just finally um you know in the course of all the research that you've done and looking through these uh, old photocopies. I'm sure they didn't have photocopies back in 1860. But uh, um, are there any particular things that stand out to you? Are there any particular sort of former members of staff you've met who you know, had great insights? Well, I've got to mention Robert Peston. Um, I was so wonderfully surprised. I, I sent him an email a few months ago and said it is our anniversary and we'd love to come and interview you. And I've heard from uh, from John Plender on the FT that that Peston started off as a cub reporter on the IC in the early 80s. Um, And he emailed back straight away and and said, oh, you know, you must come in and and I'd love to talk to you. And we had an interesting chat. And I said, well, what what articles do you remember writing, uh, uh, Robert? And he he did a cover feature in 1984 um, all about women's clothing, (laughs) which I found very amusing. We actually did manage to dig it out of the the archives in the the Guildhall Library in the city, very kindly um, opened their um, archives to us. And uh, he'd written about this new contender on the high street in the early 80s called Next, which of course uh, a very big company today, and how they were taking on the dowdy Marks and Spencers brand and appealing to Ms. Yuppie, um, which Robert explained is a horrible American um, catchy but appealing term for describing young upwardly mob- mobile professionals of either sex. Did you, did you, did you put a buy tip on it? Um, yes, yeah, he, he, he thought that Next did, uh, were going to do very well and I think he's been proved right on that. He, George Davies at the time was the joint managing director this was in the in the days when British companies had managing directors rather than chief executives. It was before the great Americanisation of the boardroom, um, and I think he I think he did did very well there to write about a subject that maybe the IC readers of the 1980s were not perhaps quite au fait with. There you go, the IC always one step ahead. Uh, <laughs> we certainly like to think anyway. Um, thanks for that, uh, Thank Claire. You. And uh, if you'd like to read more, the uh, is it 144 
pages of anniversary. Yes, exactly. Listen, listen to how heavy that is. Uh, of anniversary issue uh, is on sale now, of course, in all good news agents, featuring interviews with, uh, as Claire said, Robert Peston and other luminaries, including John Bogle and Jim Slater. You can also read um, Claire's uh, analysis of investment returns over 150 years in FT Money this weekend. And finally today, new build property. Empty new build flats in the city centres of Manchester and Leeds came to symbolise the bust that followed the recent buy-to-let property boom. According to the Nationwide House Price Index, the average UK house price was 8.4% off its peak at the end of the second quarter of 2010, but 12.1% off its peak if it was a new build property. But these lower prices have now been attracting greater demand from owner-occupiers rather than speculators. And Savills reports that owner-occupiers accounted for 84% of all new home sales in the first half of this year. So, Tanya, it looks as if you know, new build property prices are set to recover. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, we had this... Um very different situation at the peak of the market in 2007 where actually there was this kind of huge oversupply of new build property. I mean, mostly like you mentioned, the the city centre flats um, and obviously some new build um, homes as well. And that kind of led to lots of problems with overinflated prices and there was this kind of this new build premium where actually like over the course of like the over, during the downturn, we've obviously seen that premium eroded, which has actually helped um, first time buyers and kind of just sort of normal buyers as well to be honest because now prices are a lot lower and actually because a lot of the um stock actually um that was kind of coming into um into play that's actually been put on hold so we're actually not even seeing that much stock of new build properties coming through so what we are seeing coming through tend to be the more successful ones and kind of better quality which is actually attracting owner occupiers more rather than investors um so i think with if this limited stock is going to continue we are actually going to see prices kind of continue to continue to rise and probably obviously like we mentioned they're like lower than um sort of the second hand market at the moment so they've got kind of further to go really and is it um is it mainly houses or is it flats and houses because of course though you know the, the, all of the speculative building of uh, of these city center apartments uh with hindsight now looks like um you know the, the you know busted flush waiting to happen um but is this more uh, across the whole market I think the, the prices from the nationwide house price index, um, that's obviously kind of the average, so that's probably new build properties, houses, as well as flats. But um, obviously the houses are doing better than um, than the flats because there's a bit more demand for them. Um, but what we're actually seeing is that it's a lot more kind of deals um, that house builders and developers are offering on kind of the, the new build flats. So they're actually kind of... We've got a situation where obviously mortgage finance across the market as a whole is very like limited and very restrained and it's especially the case with um, the new build market because lenders are still very wary following that kind of boom and bust that happened and this overdevelopment of these flats but I think for first-time buyers that are keen to kind of get a one two-bedroom property these new build flats are actually providing quite a good deal because I mean we've got Barrett Homes this week that's come out with um, an extension of their Head Start program which is actually offering um, so Basically, they provide a 15% loan, like an interest-free loan to um, the buyer, um, which they have 10 years to to pay off. And this means that they the buyer will actually only have to put down 5% deposit and then get an 80% mortgage. So it kind of makes it that much easier for them to actually get onto the ladder because most lenders at the moment aren't really offering... Um, it tends to be around 70% loan-to-value for flats or kind of, well, 80% sometimes, um, slightly more for new-build um, 
houses because they're a bit more happy with those. So we're seeing actually kind of a lot more developers come up with schemes that can actually help first-time buyers get onto the ladder. And because the prices have fallen so much, owner-operators are quite, quite attracted to these deals. And I suppose we've seen this week that um, the first-time buyer numbers are still very low. Mm. They, they, they fall again this week? They've fallen again, yeah. So, yeah. Th- so this is one possible way in which a first-time buyer can get you know, some help to get on the ladder. Well, it's, I mean, new build property tends to be the easier way for first-time buyers to get onto the ladder now because of these deals. I mean, the second-hand market, you still would have to pay um, a bigger deposit. And obviously, de- it's in developers' interest to, to get more people buying their properties. Um, yeah, so... It's providing a better deal. I think we need slightly more innovation in the market. We need a few more house builders and developers to actually look at doing similar deals. Earlier this year in June, um, Bovis Homes linked up with Woolwich to offer like a 90% loan-to-value deal on their, uh, if you buy a um, Bovis Home property. Um, and that was kind of introduced with this, they had this kind of insurance indemnity thing set up with Woolwich to kind of let them to encourage them to actually offer these 90% loan-to-value deals. So I think a lot of developers and house builders are actually just kind of watching to see um, how these schemes are doing and whether they're successful, and then we might see a few more of them come onto the market. Well, let's hope so, and uh, well, we'll keep an eye on them as well and uh, report back on the show. Um, Tanya, thanks very much for that. And uh, for more on the types of uh, new-build property that are proving attractive, look out for Tanya's analysis in the money section of this weekend's FT. But that's all for this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find weekday news updates and all of these stories on our website, ft.com forward slash money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, just email us. We will answer your questions or get financial experts to do so on the Reader's Questions page of FT Money. It's a free service and anonymous, so just send your questions in by email to money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Alice, Tanya and our special studio guest, Claire Barrett of Investors Chronicle. Goodbye. Bye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.